of What will you do with Jesus? I think the reason that that is one of our most enduring hymns, it's one that's been around a long time, is because of the question it poses. What will you do with Jesus? You see, that's a central question that's been asked ever since Jesus walked on the earth. And did you notice that line, neutral, you cannot be? When you read through the Gospels, you don't find a lot of people who are just neutral about Jesus. When people hear Jesus speak, there's usually a reaction. You might have people like at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7, who are amazed because Jesus spoke as one with authority. So some people might be amazed by him. Or you might have other groups like the religious leaders and the Pharisees who were looking for a way they might kill him, looking for a way that they might persecute him. You see, there are very few wishy-washy, lukewarm responses to Jesus. And throughout the years, humans have been struggling. What will we do with Jesus? Well, that's the core question we're going to deal with this evening. If you're here with us and you're visiting, we're thrilled to have you with us. We're going to begin a series tonight that will last this week and next Sunday night, where we're going to focus on that question, essentially, what will we do with Jesus? Because we're facing some aspects of our culture that are calling what we've always thought about Christ into question. And so as, as we think about the subject for tonight, tonight and next week we'll be focused on what we're calling cracking the Da Vinci Code. And for those of you who might be wondering why we would spend our, our time on this, why we would spend our time talking about a book that's being made into a movie, and what purpose that would have for us, I think that we have a great deal of opportunity coming our way. I was talking to a lady just the other day who mentioned that on the Today Show, they had a religious expert come in and talk about the Da Vinci Code. And he said, all of these church groups that are worried about this book and this movie, they just must not have strong enough faith. Because if this book challenges your faith, then, then you must not be strong enough. You must not be faithful enough. And so I want to be very clear that tonight what we're doing is not questioning our faith. We're training ourselves to take advantage of an opportunity. Have you noticed there are times in life when we have teachable moments? There are times when you're dealing with a friend or coworker who's going through difficult situations in life, and you've got a teachable moment. You've got a chance to take advantage of that time and teach them something about your faith, teach them something about Christianity. Those teachable moments don't last very long, and we need to take advantage of it. You probably remember not very long ago that the passion of the Christ really created a hysteria in this country as the movie came out and you had a big name Hollywood actor and director who was putting money behind this movie with a religious theme. And that opened all kinds of doors to evangelism and the teaching. People who never would have thought about Christ's death on the cross were thinking about it because of that movie. I was talking to a missionary in Russia who said that there were children in Russia who had never owned a Bible they had lived through some times where they couldn't easily access one, and then they still hadn't read much of it, but they saw the passion of the Christ, and they saw the story of Jesus. And so they had all of these questions about a book they'd never read. As Christians, when we see teachable moments like this one, God is giving us an opportunity to do some teaching. And so as we think about tonight's session, we're just going to be honest with ourselves, try to be honest with the text, what God wants us to know. 
and hopefully find some ways we can train ourselves to take advantage of these open doors that we see. And so as, as we think about this subject, I want to ask the question, why this has created such a rage? I, just if you'd permit me, raise your hand if you have read the book, The Da Vinci Code. Just, just raise your hand. It's, it's okay. I'm raising my hand too. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard of the book, The Da Vinci Code. There we go. Whether you've read it or not, you've heard about it. It's created a rage, hasn't it? I mean, that's for the past three years. It sat on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's a very suspenseful book. When you look through, there are some, some very short chapters, and, and they each end with a cliffhanger. And so they leave you thinking, well, next chapter is only five pages long or ten pages long. Surely I can finish this in a few minutes. And it just keeps you reading. It also talks about things that are, are secrets and forbidden. And, and we really have a desire to find out some, some secrets, something that has been kept from us. We want to know what that is. It also appeals to kind of an anti-religious sentiment in our country. You may remember that when this book came out, there were a great deal of scandals in several religious bodies, but especially in the Catholic Church concerning priests and some scandals that had taken place with child abuse in the church. And so it was really kind of preying on that anti-religious sentiment. And so as we think about it, we don't want to spend tonight giving a, a book review, and I don't want to tell you what, what to read and what not to read. We just want to find out some tools we can use when people ask questions about this. And I can guarantee you that there will be some questions. Uh, several have talked to me about this book and said, well, you know, Andrew, it's just a, a piece of fiction. There's really no reason to spend much time on it. But did you notice, for those of you who might have seen The Passion of the Christ, and even if you didn't, did you notice that when you go through and you sit in a movie and, and you see things on the screen, sometimes, whether we like it or not, seeing can be reality. And people could leave a movie like that one thinking, not, well, I didn't realize that Mel Gibson, the director, thought everything happened this way, or I didn't realize the actors thought it happened this way. They can leave thinking, I didn't know it happened that way. You know, we kind of accept what we see as fact, and, and we're going to have people, as we deal with this book and, and movie starring Tom Hanks and big-budget Hollywood actors, we're going to have people asking us questions. Well, all of that was presented as fact. What does that mean? And so when we think about this subject, I want to begin with the quote from the author himself, which obviously it is a novel, and he says that. He said, therefore, it's a work of fiction. While the book's characters and their actions are obviously not real, the artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals displayed in this novel all exist. And so, while the novel's not true, there are a lot of things that are being passed off as fact, and we need to be able to give an answer, as Peter would say, for the hope that lies within us. And so, I just want to give us a, a little bit of a sketch. We're not going to go into detail uh, on the, the book, and I'm not going to ruin the ending for uh, the movie for anybody, but... I just want to give us an idea of what's taking place. You have three main characters. Dr. Robert Langdon is a symbologist. That sounds like a very worthy profession, symbology. That sounds exciting. It actually doesn't exist. Uh, you can't get a degree in symbology. Uh, for you guys who are hoping to go major in symbology now, I'm sorry. You can't actually get a degree in that. But he's a symbologist, and his occupation apparently is finding clues in ancient artwork and architecture. And then the, the main female in this movie and book is called Sophie Nouveau. And the first name, Sophie, comes from the Greek word Sophia, which means wisdom. Uh, you remember Paul talks a lot in the beginning of 1 Corinthians about the, the wisdom of the cross and how he didn't come to them with, uh, with powerful words, 
but he came to them with, with the power of the Spirit. He didn't come to them with that earthly wisdom. And when he keeps using that word wisdom over and over again, that's that Greek word Sophia. There were, there were a group of Greek people called sophists that would go around and they would try to be wise in their own eyes. They would argue with people and they would spout off their philosophy. And Paul's saying he wasn't like one of those because his power came from God. Well, it's that same root word here. Uh, her name means wisdom and then nouveau would indicate a new eve. That means you've got a new, a new woman. You've got a new, uh, a new start for, for women as we think of them religiously. And then the main character who kind of gives the theories behind the book is named Sir Lee Teabing. Interestingly enough, you might have seen on the news that the author of this book is being sued because what he writes in this book sounds a whole lot like what was written in Holy Blood, Holy Grail. That was a book that came out in the mid-70s, and that kind of gave rise to a lot of these ideas. And interestingly enough, his character, Lee Teabing, has the same letters in his name as the authors of that book. So it's kind of a not-so-subtle uh, way to show where he's getting his information from. And so as, as we think about these characters, uh, the, main, the main portion of the book that's controversial is a conversation between all three of these. Here is just a sketch of what it says. It says that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that they had a daughter, Sarah. And so after that, it said Jesus intended to hand his ministry and the, the keys to the kingdom over to Mary rather than Peter. And then it says that the Holy Grail that we talk about, we've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is actually Mary Magdalene because she was Jesus' wife and that's the bloodline and the church has been covering up the secret for centuries. But Leonardo da Vinci hid some clues in his paintings that show that this is really what happened. That's kind of the gist of, of what's going to be asked to us. We're going to get questions like this. When you put it up, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this PowerPoint. When, when you put it up on a list like this, it seems pretty out there. You think to yourself, well, surely there's, there's no way people would buy into this, but I promise it's challenging a lot of thinking right now. And so we want to be ready. We just want to have biblical answers to what's going to take place. So here are, uh, here's a picture of Da Vinci's The Last Supper. Here are some of the clues, kind of where they get this from. And by the way, this is a very little-known fact. Not a lot of people know this. But are you aware of what the final words were at the Last Supper? I don't know if many people know this. It was, uh, everyone who wants in the picture, get on this side of the table. I don't know if you knew that very much. But uh, I did, uh, just think about that for a second. That was, that was for uh, Lindsay McPherson. She liked that one, so I wanted to throw that in there. The Last Supper. Here, here are the clues. They would come up to the, the painting of the Last Supper and two big things. Number one, if you look right there to our left of the central character who is Jesus, we have a person that is usually seen as John, the Apostle John, the Apostle whom Jesus loved. And the reason we think that is because we remember Jesus dipping his bread there to show who was going to be the one to betray him. And John was the Apostle he loved who was asking him the question. Well, they would look at this and say that that is actually not a man at all. That is Mary Magdalene, that she was at the Last Supper. Well, that's pretty interesting. So not only that, but also if you look between them, the way that John, or as, as they would say Mary, is leaning and Jesus is leaning the other way, that gives you a, a V symbol, and that would be the chalice, the symbol of the divine feminine. And that's kind of a theme that you see, the divine feminine. So Leonardo is trying to let us know that that Mary Magdalene was present at the Last Supper and that he believed she was married and all of these kinds of things, this is sort of where they're taking it from. 
And so the fundamental, fundamental question that's going to be asked is, who is Jesus? And we know that it's okay to ask the question, who do people say that Jesus is? Because Jesus himself asked it. Look at this verse, uh, this series of verses in Matthew chapter 16. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus is asking his disciples. So it's important for us to know, who are men saying that Jesus is? So they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, uh, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? You see, that opening question, who do people say that I am, was, was not a question like a political candidate would ask about his approval ratings. It was a setup for the more important question, who do you say that I am? And so Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it's important that we know who men say that Jesus is and that we have a response, that we can answer that question. So here's the first question we want to look at tonight. Did Jesus claim to be the Son of God? And as we read through the text, I've just put up some quotes so that we'll know exactly what's, what's being said in the book. He's discussing the Council of Nicaea. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in just a second, so just store that one away. But the uh, main kind of, uh, of theorist here, Teabing, says these words, until that moment in history, which is A.D. 325, so in other words, he's saying until A.D. 325, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, nonetheless. Let me get this back up here. It might make it easier to hear. A man, nonetheless, immortal. And so we need to ask ourselves if that's historically accurate. And when people come to you with these questions, they're probably going to ask about this Council of Nicaea. Now, we're not going to go in depth on this, but just so you know, the Council of Nicaea was a group that met in 325. Constantine became the emperor, and probably for political reasons, he made Christianity a legal religion. Now, this is pretty major because before then, Christianity had been illegal. So you had these Christians who were meeting together, and they were trying not to let the government find out about it. But Constantine makes it legal, probably for political purposes. And so now you've got all these different ideas. So he has this Council of Nicaea. And the main question they were discussing is whether or not Jesus was divine. That was the main question. There was a man named Arius who started going around teaching that Jesus was created by God and that he wasn't eternal, that he wasn't divine. And so they had to deal with that. So there was a council that took place in AD 325 that talked about that. The question is, were there people before then that believed Jesus was the Son of God? And so as, as we think about this, let's go back to the passage we just read. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer was, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. When we look at the apostles and the other teachers all through the New Testament, we see that Peter in that day of Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, says, God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ. Not just Christ, the promised one, but Lord, your master. So Peter on the day of Pentecost, just seven weeks after the cross, understood what it meant for Jesus to die and to be raised from the dead. Just, just, just seven weeks after all of that happened, he understood that Jesus was the Son of God. John said in that beautiful passage in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then later on in verse 16, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's saying that Jesus was God made flesh. John seemed to understand that. Uh, you remember when Stephen was being stoned, when he was, when he was being put to death, he looked up and who did he see? He saw God and then who was right next to him? God the Father and then you had Jesus standing at his right hand. Apollos, after Apollos had been taught the, the truth, started proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. 
And so those are some biblical examples of people who knew and understood the power of the gospel was the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. It wasn't something that was decided on later. That's what gave the gospel its power. And so as, as we look at that, we see that not only people in the New Testament believe that, but there are also some church historians that attest to that. Uh, we usually refer to a group of guys as the, quote, church fathers. The reason we call them that is because they're historians that wrote as close as we can get to the time of the church. And they have fun names to pronounce like Irenaeus and Origen and Hippolytus and those kinds of names you don't hear a lot anymore. But they've got some interesting things to say. Just look at what a few of them said about Jesus. Ignatius called him God existing in the flesh. And remember, you've got him living in the first century, so he's really close to the time of the church. Justin Martyr called him Christ and God to be worshipped. And then Irenaeus would call him the Holy Lord and the Mighty God. So this is extending all through the first century into the second century. Clement of Alexandria would say that he's quite evidently the true God. Uh, Tertullian would say that Christ is also God. Origen said he was God. He took flesh. Hippolytus called Christ the substance of God. This is a pretty consistent message all the way through history that Jesus was God. And this all happened before any council took place, before Constantine took the throne, before any of this happened in AD 325. So we think not only historically, but we know biblically that disciples understood Jesus was the Son of God. It's not something that was just made up or decided in the fourth century. And so that gives us some tools for dealing with question number one. You may have people come up to you and say, you know, I didn't realize that it wasn't until the fourth century they even figured out Jesus was the Son of God. And so now we'll have some tools that we can take back and say, well, here's some scriptural passages. And, and if you don't believe the Bible or want to look at that, there are also some historical passages we can look at. Second question is, who was Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene could probably uh, win an, an Entertainer of the Year award, as I heard one man put it, because she's been in every single movie and every single play developed about the life of Jesus. And here's what one of the characters in the book says about Mary Magdalene. He says that it was not to Peter, to whom Christ gave directions on which to establish the Christian church, it was to Mary Magdalene. Now that's pretty major. That's, if, if, if I'm thinking about my foundation as a Christian, that's a pretty major attack on what I've believed. And so I need to ask myself, who is Mary Magdalene? Uh, when you look at any plays or movies about Jesus' life, uh, when you look about Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, Gospel Road, which was another musical version, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, which is very controversial and, and really blasphemous, The Gospel of John and The Passion of Christ. You've got Mary Magdalene there. There's kind of a fascination with who she is. Uh, she's from Magdala, which is where she gets her name, and she's in all four of the Gospels. And it's really interesting. In Luke 8 and verse 2, we see that she had seven demons driven out of her. And she's part of this group of women, this, this ministering group of women that's helping Jesus in his ministry. And so we know that she had been healed. We knew that she was grateful to Jesus and she wanted to help him in any way, any way possible. And sometimes she's been linked to that sinful woman. You remember we talked about this morning out of Luke chapter 7, the woman who was washing Jesus' feet with her tears and, and drying with her hair. Uh, sometimes she is uh, confused and kind of combined with that woman but we just don't see anything in the text about that. And actually, we can kind of link that back to a statement made uh, by Gregory the Great, who served as the Pope. He, he got him a little confused in his sermon. It had never happened before then. And since then, you've had kind of, of that confusion about who she really was. If you noticed in the movie The Passion, 
she was depicted as the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. I don't know if you remember. There was a flashback, and you see her caught in adultery as, as the woman in John chapter 8. Well, we just don't know that. It's just not in the text. And so as, as we think about the way she's been viewed, uh, we also see that in the Gospel of John, they, they put her there in, in the Last Supper. They kind of slide her in, uh, in there helping serve the food and do some of that. So, so we see there are a lot of questions about her. And there are some accounts that aren't in Scripture and aren't inspired that are referenced as we think about this. There is a writing titled The Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Now, this was not written until 200 years after Jesus lived and died and rose. So it would be like one of us today coming up with a, a history of something that happened in, in 1806 and, and then passing it around and saying that this was inspired. There wasn't an eyewitness here. It's never been judged as inspirational, but it's a writing that exists. And you have this account that Peter's becoming jealous that Jesus loved Mary more than him. And there's a fragment of another book that falls into the same category, the Gospel of, of Philip, in quotations, that has caused some to claim that Jesus gave Mary and not Peter the keys to the kingdom. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about the Bible and how we know what books we got in the Bible. But I, I want us to think about how serious this is. This flies in the face of what we read in the Gospels and Acts. And so how do we respond to this? Uh, and so as we think about Mary Magdalene, this leads us to question three. In answering uh, this question, Teabing says, the marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene is a matter of historical record. Social decorum during that time virtually forbid a Jewish man to be unmarried. And then, in a couple of pages later, he says, I shan't bore you with the countless references to Jesus and Mary Magdalene's union. Now, I'll tell you, as we start thinking about phrases like historical record and countless references, those terms are being used pretty loosely uh, when we take a look at history. And this is pretty serious. This is probably the question we'll be asked most out of anything else. Well, Jesus was married? Well, no. Well, how do you know he wasn't? You don't know that he wasn't. This was their theory. And so as we think about this, it's important, number one, above all else, that no New Testament text ever even hints at Jesus being married. It's just not anything we find in any of the New Testament texts. And obviously, if we're going to look for a source of information on Jesus' life, there's no better place and there's no place that's superior to the inspired Word of God. And so looking there, we know that there's, there's no hint of Jesus being married. And usually, if you notice looking through the Bible, when, when women are mentioned, they're usually tied to significant men in their lives. And so it will be someone the wife of so-and-so or someone the daughter of so-and-so. But when we see Mary Magdalene mentioned, She's linked with the place she's from, Magdala. She's Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. If she was from Mount Juliet, she would be Mary Mount Julietan, you know, and that wouldn't sound all that great, but that would be how she got her name. She'd be linked to where she was from. And so as we see that, she's never linked with Jesus in any of these accounts. And every time she's mentioned, except for once, she's included in a group of women, usually that group of women that was helping Jesus minister. And so we just don't see any hints of that in the New Testament. It's interesting that at the cross, you remember that scene where Jesus shows a very special concern for his mother? Remember he tells John, behold your mother, woman, behold your son. He wants to make sure that his mother's taken care of. Well, it just stands to reason that if there was any other relationship with a woman in his life, that he would show special concern for her. But he doesn't. And so that's just another, another reason that helps us think that he's not married. Also, there's a passage in John chapter 20 I want us to turn to. 
John chapter 20. We discussed this in a Bible class recently. When we think of Jesus coming back, one of the key texts with Mary Magdalene is when she sees Christ in his resurrected form. And so I want us to look at John chapter 20, specifically in verse 17. Now, you've got to put yourself in Mary's place here. She's believed that this master teacher, the one who delivered her from seven demons, I mean, he, he turned her life around. He gave her her life back. And now he's died, and she's going just to show respect to, at the burial and, and, and fill out a, a custom that they were used to doing. And then she sees that he's living. And in verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now, some people have taken this and said the word cling here, she must have been hugging him. You know, she was so glad to see him and she was putting her arms around him. There's no connotation of anything other than just an excitement at seeing the master teacher who had changed her life and wanting to just hold on to him because she couldn't believe it. And he says, we're on a timetable. We're on a schedule. I, you need to go. I haven't even ascended to my father yet. You need to go tell my disciples that I'm here. And so when we think about the word cling, there is no kind of connotation that would lead us to any other sort of relationship. And there were other uninspired writings, and there were uh, Gnostic Gospels, as they were called, that weren't included in the Bible. Not a single one, not a single one claims that Jesus and Mary were married. Not, not a single one claims that. And so it's interesting, in the book, he mentions the Gospel of Philip. Once again, it's in that class written a long time after Jesus has lived and describes Mary as a, quote, companion of Jesus, and at one part of this uninspired writing, remember, it said that Jesus kissed her. What's interesting, not only that the book's not inspired, but it's a damaged manuscript. In other words, there are holes when you're trying to read the letters, and so you have to fill in what you think goes in that spot. So we're not even sure that the, the word for kissed is even there, and even if it were, we don't know what's on either end of it. And even if we knew what kind of, of sentence it was in, there's another kiss that kind of resembles what you'd see in Romans 16 by greeting one another with a holy kiss. There's another kiss that's mentioned later on in the book. It could be one of those. And so what you have here is a theory about Jesus and Mary Magdalene that's based on the possible reading of what it could say if we filled in some words to a damaged manuscript of an uninspired text. And that's kind of where this, this idea has come from. There are two references. We mentioned the Gospel of, of Mary Magdalene in quotations and the, quote, Gospel of Philip. Those are the two places where we see any kind of hint at a special relationship that people were trying to write in. There simply aren't countless references. And as we go and, and as, we, as we deal with these subjects and see the, the book and the movie, there just aren't countless references. I can't repeat that enough. There are only two, and they're not inspired. And so as we think about Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene, we have not only some scriptural evidence, but also some historical evidence to call that into question. Now, here's something. Was it un-Jewish for Jesus to be single? In other words, was every Jewish rabbi married? Would it be out of the ordinary for Jesus to be single? Well, there are a couple of scriptures I think are appropriate. You might remember in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks about those who are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, those who don't marry because they want to serve in the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting, too, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul has this section where he's, he's sort of defending his right to do different things, his right to, to be paid, and he also defends his right to be married. And as, as he defends that, you just have to imagine that if Jesus were married, that wouldn't be an issue. And rather than pointing to other 
preachers and teachers who were married, he could have just pointed to Jesus as the example. It's just not there. And so as we think about this question, uh, many say that, that all Jewish rabbis or, or teachers were married. But it's interesting that even though Jesus is called a rabbi, you remember this morning we talked about the uh, way Jesus lived, kind of stood out from society. He wasn't ever in any of the official circles of the Jewish teachers or rabbis. In fact, they're the ones who were trying to persecute him. And so as, as we look through history, we see references of just of pious teachers that weren't married. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't out of the ordinary. Jesus wasn't standing out from every other Jewish teacher. And even if he did, as the Son of God, his example, his life stands out from everyone's life anyway. And so as we think about all of these questions, I hope that, I hope that we can have some tools for, for dealing with, with uh, inquiries people might have conversations we might have at work. I want you to know that I put out some copies of, of this PowerPoint so you can have some information out in the foyer. I didn't put them out beforehand because I didn't want anyone to cheat and read ahead and get done before I did. But you can grab some on your way out. And I, I really want us to be ready to take advantage of these teachable moments. You see, this question, what will we do with Jesus, is not going to go away. This is a question mankind has always dealt with and will always deal with. And there will be new writings and new opinions and new things that crop up. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what will we do with Jesus? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? I think looking at God's word, there's no doubt. Looking at history, we see God's word and what's written in the scriptures upheld at every turn. Everywhere we look, we see that the revelation God has given us is true. We see that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And as we think about this question, what will we do with Jesus? It's a question every one of us has to answer for ourselves. And you may be here tonight visiting with us, and this may be the first time you've even heard Jesus mentioned. And I appreciate Phil so much for leading us in those songs that focused us on Christ, the power we have through his resurrection, through his blood. And if we submit to his life, if we humble ourselves and start obeying his will, put him on in baptism and begin that new walk following in his steps, as Peter would say, we've got a promise in heaven that's far greater than anything we can imagine. And that promise can be every one of ours tonight at a time when we're all gathered together for the purpose of learning more about God, worshiping him and teaching others. And I pray that God will continue to help us use these kinds of discussions as ways to teach the truth and love about his son. And if there's something on your mind as you've been thinking about what you will do with Christ, if there's any possible way that we can help you, we ask that you would come forward and make that known as we stand and as we sing together. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by...